Thanks for listening to show 31 of the C-Suite podcast, the second in a series of specials that I'm recording here at the Global ICO PR Summit in Oxford, and a show that is quite a milestone for me as I've reached my 100th guest in the series, and so I think it's pretty appropriate to have someone rather significant in the uh, PR world to help me through the century of interviews, and therefore I'm thrilled to welcome to the show former CEO of Huntsworth PLC, Lord Chadlington. Thank you. Um, now, you've just presented the uh, second day's keynote speech uh, here at the conference, a fascinating and, and inspiring talk, um, and you've been looking at creating the consultancy of the future. So just for the benefit of those listeners who weren't here today, could you just give a quick recap on uh, some of those thoughts that you shared? Well, the, the, the big thank you so much. I, I'm not quite 100 years old. So, <laughs> but um, 100th guest. 100th guest, yes. Yeah. Um, I, I've uh, tried to say to people that the industry is in a very difficult place because increasingly the traditional work is being taken over by and developed by uh, software, particularly uh, simple businesses to do with reputation online will in the end be the core business that public relations people do and it will not be carried out by public relations people and they've got to decide what kind of a business they're going to have because somebody else is eating their breakfast. Well it's, it's interesting because when someone actually asks you a question you're quite uh, I, I thought it was a fantastic answer in telling them that their, their business is actually going to be uh, dead if they don't you know make these changes. I mean a lot a lot of the stuff that we cover on, on this series is about how we consume in media and it's constantly changing and the new platforms innovation. Can you explain where you think the challenges, the challenges or the disruptors are to, to this you know type of consultancy that you're trying to. Well, it, it depends now. We've got to look at what influences us, where yeah. we get our information from, because public relations is about changing views, changing attitudes. So where do we get the information from? Now, it used to be from the morning papers. It used to be listening to the radio on the way in in the morning. It used to be these things. It used to be <coughs> waiting for a television program to come on the television. Um, nobody does any of these things anymore to any great degree. We certainly don't say to ourselves, I must listen to the news tonight. Um, we get our news from Twitter. We get our news from all kinds of different areas. And whereas in the, before all this started, people could influence the way the news, news was presented, you can't influence anymore because there are so many different channels coming into you. That's what we have to address, and that is the big issue, not just for commercial organizations, but it's terribly important for politicians. It's terribly important over how they communicate with us all over Brexit. How mm. all these things, it's a new world and we've got to ha get a big handle on it. Um, there's a number of things I wanted to talk, talk through with you. I know we don't have much time, so I'm gonna jump around on, on sure, a couple of topics. Um, you, you stepped down from your role of uh, senior advisor yeah. at Huntsworth earlier this year. It's been six months since that announcement. Um, Obviously, the agency was a pretty significant part of your PR career, but yeah. how are you finding life now away from that, and what's the plan in terms of your own Chadlington consultancy, and more importantly, are you following those rules that you went through? I'm certainly following those rules. I mean, this will now be, I think, the eighth agency that I've started or invested right. in or produced, and um, it's a wonderful world because what I try and do, I, I, I announced my stepping down two and a half years ago from Huntsworth, and uh, of course formed and founded and built and sold Shandwick before that. Yeah. So this new world is about an agency. I'm trying to create an agency which meets exactly the challenges that I've been talking about. It's, it's, it's not to produce something like I did before, yeah. it's to produce something new like I've never done before, which I think is exciting and interesting. That's fantastic. Um, I've got an interview lined up with some of the other speakers here um, to talk about the future of public affairs. Yeah. Um, now, 
key part of that conversation, in fact, you just touched on it before, is going to be Brexit. I couldn't obviously do this interview without getting your thoughts on the current political situation, the impact that might have on the industry. And I, I know you obviously, you know David Cameron very well. Um, but from a comms perspective, looking at the events that led up to the referendum and then, you know, whether or not the Remain team were focusing on the, on the right issues, the immediate announcement of Cameron's resignation, and now he's, uh, you know, obviously resigned as an MP. How would you assess the whole last few months, both from the industry and also from his own personal comms? Well, I think if you looked at the whole of the last six months and uh, Geoffrey Archer or Michael Dobbs had written it in one of their books, we'd all have said it was impossible. Yeah. I mean, it was phenomenal. I, I saw a joke on the front page of the Times with some student coming out of a lecture hall, one turning the other and saying, what are you doing for your course? And he replied, I'm doing um, the period between Thursday night and Monday morning. <laughs> and I think that is absolutely That's, right. Yeah. This has been phenomenal. Yeah. Um, I think Mr. Cameron has behaved extremely, with great dignity. I agree. He's yeah. behaved, uh, it must be shattering for him, but he's behaved with great dignity. And uh, he's accepted that the country didn't want to do what he wanted to do. But they had the choice. And giving them the choice was the key thing, from my point of view. I'm doing a whole series of, of lectures around Europe about what Brexit means for businesses. I, like before last, I was speaking in Frankfurt about what it means for German businesses. And the thing you notice, I, I was a Remainer, but I am now 9 million percent for Brexit. And we've all got to be 9 million percent for Brexit yeah. because that's what's going to happen. Yeah. So it's no good saying I wish the boat had gone another way. We've really got to fight hard and make sure Brexit is an enormous success. Do you think, uh, sort of bringing it back to the, the topic of the consultancy of yeah. the future, um, I've recorded uh, previous interviews on topics like social business, business and one in particular on the social CEO. Um, how much do you think social media should play a part of communications of the CEO? And, I, and the reason I ask this is I looked on your own Twitter feed. It's been interesting. People tweeting about what you've been commenting and they've yeah. been um, using your, your Twitter handle. Yeah. But you personally haven't tweeted for like a couple of years. So I, I was just wondering, do, is it, do you think it's something that is vital for a CEO to be on social media sharing their thoughts constantly? No, I mean, I don't. I, I think it's entirely up to the CEO to decide what he's comfortable with. I am not particularly comfortable about doing it. I am much happier doing reflective pieces. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you do, a, you know, people say, well, you've only spoken for 10 or 15 minutes or whatever it was this morning. But to do a proper 10, 15 minute speech takes a lot of work. Yeah. And yeah. I'd rather do something that I can defend and I'm reflective about and I'm sensible about or articles that I write or speeches that I make. I like them all to be more reflective than the, than the other things if I can avoid it. Okay, uh, final question then. So from Shandwick uh, to Huntsworth, um, obviously, and we've talked about it, obviously this morning the industry's changed so much in that time. You clearly have the same passion for it. And in fact, I was sitting next to um, uh, Graham Goodkind from uh, Frank PR yeah, yeah. Uh, just now, and he, he described you as having an infectious um, enthusiasm <laughs> for the industry. <laughs> what a nice what, man. <laughs> what, 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 what's, what's your thoughts on, on the whole sort of thing? You, you clearly still have that same passion. Uh, absolutely. I mean, I love it. I, I, I know I get a little bit guilty when you say this to me, but I do. I love it. Yeah. And I... I enjoy it very much. I, I'm, I'm, I'm 74 years old, so I've got to be extremely conscious of that fact. I am conscious of it. But I think the only way you keep going forward in your life is by doing more things. And what's the option? The option yeah. is to sit down and, uh, and stop. And I think stopping 
corrodes the brain, I think stopping corrodes the body. I, I just want to go on doing things that I really love, and I'm very, very lucky. I love this industry and I love this business. That's great. Uh, Lord Chattington, thank you so much for staying back to do this interview with me uh, for the C-Suite podcast. We are back uh, shortly to talk to Michelle Hutton of Edelman after this quick break. Thank you very much. It's harder than ever to keep track of everything being said in news and social media. It's even more difficult to gain actionable insights that will improve your reputation and results. Karma provides global media intelligence services to help you communicate more effectively. From automated media monitoring to expertly crafted PR measurement reports, Karma delivers what matters. For more information or to schedule a free consultation, please visit karma.com. That's C-A-R-M-A dot com. Welcome back to the C-Suite podcast here at ICO's Global PR Summit with me, Russell Goldsmith, and my next guest is Michelle Hutton, Chief Operating Officer at Edelman Europe. Uh, now, Michelle's uh, just been presenting the findings of the Edelman Brand Relationship Index to the audience here at the conference. Uh, Michelle, maybe you can just give us a quick uh, top-line summary of what the study was about. Thanks, Russell. I will. Thank you very much. I think the important point to mention up front is why we did this study. And, you know, many of your listeners would be familiar with the trust barometer research that we have been doing for many, many years at Edelman. Um, Prior to taking on my current role at Edelman, I ran our global consumer business. And um, Richard Edelman pulled me aside and said, uh, well, to him it was a simple question. Michelle, we need an equally robust piece of research and IP for our consumer and marketing business. I want to launch it at Cannes, uh, work with our research company and uh, come up with it. Off you go. And you were given how long to... uh, Well, yeah, you can imagine. (laughs) Um, So... This is a piece of work that's that's very dear to, to to my heart, and I'm really I was very delighted to to share the results here today. So, what we've attempted to do with our Earn Brand study is to craft research that we will do annually that will explore different themes of relevance to marketers. You know, one of the overriding themes in our conference, of course, has been disruption, disruption of our industry disruption of the marketing arena, the marketing opportunity. And we used that theme of disruption in the first year of our study where we looked at innovation. And we wanted to explore how people feel about innovation. Are they worried about it? Do they like it? And what we found was that people love it, but they're really scared. Mm. And apart from being inspired by innovation, they want to be reassured. So this year we looked at the theme of disruption around how can brands themselves be disruptors? And we looked at it through the lens of the relationship they have with their consumers. It's interesting. That leads on um, from what I was talking to Lord Chadlington earlier cause, and, and with his own keynote about we're getting disruptors in our own industry as well within the Absolutely. PR industry. Is that is that something that, that concerns, well, I guess obviously it does concern agencies like Edelman as well? Yeah, I mean, we would... We try to be disruptors, yeah. um, and uh, you know it's 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 not easy times for anybody for any for any agency in the marketing services arena. But I think what we tried to do in this particular study was to also explain and perhaps support marketing clients. You know, c- clients are being disrupted as well. Yeah. It's probably the most challenging time to be a marketer. Yeah. 
And, you know, in this piece of research, what we have attempted to do is to say to marketers, you have an untapped opportunity with your relationship with consumers. You yourselves can be more disruptive. What's the um, sort of like key top line stats that, that you've that have come out as a result of it? Um, so the study, you know, we, we spoke to 13,000 people globally uh, in 13 countries. And what we found, I think, is something pretty special. And that is, you know, marketers for years have spent a lot of time, energy and money getting consumers from being aware through consideration and preference uh, right up to being loyal. And what we found in this study is actually there's something pretty special beyond loyalty. When you can get consumers to be committed and really invested in a brand, they will do some pretty amazing things. And as part of this study, we developed a methodology, a way to actually measure how marketers can be disruptive in their relationship with their consumers. Uh, in your presentation, you showed that the global average score on your index was just 38 out of 100. So it doesn't need too much understanding to see that's pretty low. Is, is that a concern? You know what, I think it's more of an opportunity. And it's important to note that that particular score also tells us that people are already committed to brands in a number of different categories. You know, what was interesting was, I mean, we we looked at 18 different categories and, you know, many people think that in low involvement categories, this concept of being committed is not relevant, but actually it is. What we found in, in every single category that we explored, there are people already very, very committed to brands in those sectors in some categories that people may find really surprising. Um, so where are, are brands that aren't achieving that? Where are they falling short at the moment then? So mostly it's around this concept of shared value. You know, people who are committed to brands or who want to be committed to brands want to feel as though they are a part of the conversation. They help building a conversation around a brand. You know, brands listen well. They don't often respond well. You know, these people who are committed and want to be committed, they'll do some pretty amazing things. They'll advocate for brands. They'll defend brands in times of crisis. And, you know, interestingly, they're there waiting. Yeah, yeah. And the brands who are doing it well recognise that and use that to their, to their advantage. Um, obviously, you said it was a global study. You mentioned 13 markets um, and also across 18 brand <coughs> categories. Did you see any significant differences across those markets and categories at all? Uh, we, we did. And, you know, I interestingly, the highest uh, relationship index score we found in China um, of all markets and the lowest globally was uh, in the Netherlands. And, you know, what we found from a demographic split was that millennial males are actually the most engaged segment with brands, which we found really surprising. Um, I have to say, for listeners' benefits, if you can hear any clanging in the background, they're actually setting up for lunch here. Michelle is doing a, a tremendous <laughs> job. And the food looks amazing, <laughs> so I'm getting like slightly distracted. So we're but we're yeah. yeah, so we're <laughs> going to speed through these last couple of questions because it's making us very hungry. Um, what, what's the advice uh, to clients to turn audiences into committed advocates and defenders of their brand then? 
Well, I'm going to use a term that Alini Santos from Unilever shared with us when we talked to her about this research and our methodology, and that is consumer actionism. And that's about how can you engage consumers to take real action around a brand? You know, we've for years talked about CSR, we've talked about the importance of brand purpose, but now we know that brands who actively engage with people, get them involved, they will take action and they will do some pretty amazing things. And I do think that Unilever is a best-in-class example of a company encouraging all of their brand marketers to think long-term and to think creatively about how purpose can not only drive business results through brands, but actually make the world a better place. Sure. Any other, aside from Unilever, any other brands that are doing this correctly, doing a good job? Well, I think the interesting thing is that it's the the disruptors where we started this conversation. You know, they they understand the shared economy. They understand the power of peer-to-peer. So, you know, many marketers, companies and businesses in more traditional categories need to look at those startups, their business models, how they're engaging with consumers, how they're responding, how they're communicating. That's where we're all heading. So final question, obviously, where can people go to find out more information about the report? Um, Everything is on our website, so edelman.com. As with our trust barometer, we give away all of this data and uh, you'll see all of the slides from my presentation and more on our website. Fantastic. Michelle Hutton, thanks for joining the show. Thank you very much. Consumers are 10 times more likely to buy goods or services if addressed in their own language. Conversus enables international businesses to communicate their message across different languages and cultures. For translation and localization of your PR comms and website content, multilingual desktop publishing and audio dubbing and subtitling of videos, visit conversus.com. Welcome back to the C-Suite Podcast and joining me now is Graham Goodkind, chairman and founder of Frank PR and someone um, I've known quite a little time in the industry and um, I think he's a little bit offended that he's only guest number 102 on the show. 102, yeah, I think I think <laughs> it's because you've got an anti-Guna policy about who you have on your podcast. That, so. c- that could be very true actually. Now you've just uh, come off stage at the ICO uh, conference here talking about timesheets in um, public relations agencies and, and how they're being used. You're clearly in the against camp. Um, What's your thoughts on on that whole sort of area? If you could just share for the listeners what you were just sort of going through and, and talking about, arguing for that for that case against it. Yeah, sure. It's 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 um it's funny. It's a, it's always a bit of a weird subject for me to talk about timesheets because, as an agency, Frank is now sixteen years old and has never once um, tracked time or used a timesheet for any occasion. The whole business was set up um, on a completely different premise, which was um, to sell ideas, creativity, and results to clients. So the whole you know, the whole idea behind Frank is if that's what you sell, what's time got to do with it? Yeah. Um, and actually, we never use timesheets to even track how we go about running the business internally. I think good management and, uh, you know, a good way of monitoring people is if you're at your desk, and, and I am very often still, even at 7.15, 7.30 at night, and I have a look around the office, and I see, see who's in and working hard, that to me is as good as any time management system. There's nothing wrong with good gut feel, good old-fashioned management some of the time. Um, so we've never done timesheets, and I've often asked about, oh, how do you run a business without yeah. doing timesheets, and how's it work? Um, and hopefully I can sort of explain a bit like uh, now in, in in this. But when I was talking, invited to talk, I thought I'd do a little bit of research. Um, we talked today at this uh, ICO Summit and yesterday about data, and uh, so I kind of 
tried to conjure up my own. And just sure. over the last week or so, I've just been uh, doing a, a survey, you know, promoting it by um, social media to get response. I've had about 100 or so people that have responded from the PR industry. I'm UK-based, really. So that's okay. Decent yeah. sample. It's not bad. And, um, and, and actually out of them, which is pretty representative of the hands that went up in the room today, about 90% of people um, use timesheets. And 90% of the people in my survey use timesheets. And that was pretty much the same in the room. I asked the question um, whether uh, do you or have you ever filled in a timesheet either inaccurately, incorrectly, or retrospectively, or in any such way that the ability to be accurate was compromised. And the amount of people that said yes to that was 90%. So most timesheets are a waste of time, yeah. um, some could say. Um, I asked people whether they knew other people in the industry and whether they thought they filled out their timesheets accurately. And 65% uh, of people said that people that they knew didn't, they didn't think they filled them out ac accurately either. So, you know, basically their peers weren't doing it either. But I asked people also um, whether they prefer to work in an agency that doesn't use timesheets. 70% of people either agreed or agreed strongly um, with that sentiment. Um, and when I asked people, did they think that clients um, thought timesheets were valuable, whether what were clients' attitudes towards it? 71% um, of people said that they felt their clients were apathetic at best to the use of their agency's uh, timesheets. So clients don't want timesheets particularly. PR people don't want timesheets particularly. And if they're forced to do them, they don't even complete them accurately. So what is the point in it? It does, it does beg the question. And, 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 and yet there were still arguments in the room to, to have them. And, and I guess you know, with some of the clients um, and some of the agencies that do you know, work, uh, uh, you know, off, off timesheets um, permanently. I suppose their concern is, well, how are you measuring things like your profit margins and, and, and things like that? How, how would you respond to that? I think timesheets for a lot of agencies are a crutch, and they're an old crutch, an old creaky one that they're still just about leaning on. Um, and they've set their businesses up this way. So you've got to remember that PR agencies have traditionally thought they were about selling time, um, and timesheets would be, therefore, a logical yeah. way of evaluating it. Um, I think they've missed the point. I don't think we are selling time. I think we're selling, you know, we're selling output rather than input. Um, and if I'm a client achieving or receiving any sort of service, I, I kind of just want a great service. I'm not really fussed how much time it takes uh, of that individual to provide that service. Actually, I'd rather them do it probably a bit quicker. So, um, so if you're not selling time, how are you charging for your, your ideas, which is what you're so suggesting you're... I think you just have a conversation with a client. It's about the value that you create. If I sit down with a client, um, and sort of talk about um, a fee for something, to me that should reflect what value that's creating in their business. I often say, you know, some of my best ideas or some of the agency's best ideas, we've sat down in a brainstorm and we've cracked it in 10, 15 minutes. We've kind of got to an insight pretty quickly and we've just known what was wrong with the client and what the answers to the brief was and then we come up with a nugget of an idea that's gone on to provide the basis of an award-winning campaign and we've had many of those award-winning campaigns. Now, just because that took 15 minutes certainly doesn't mean it's worth 15 minutes of time. And agencies have traditionally run like that is that the kind of uh, fee that they charge should be commensurate with the time that they put in. I don't think it should. You know, that to me, that 15 minutes that it took to come up with the idea is a result of 25 years plus of experience in yeah. this industry coming up with those sort of things. How do you value that? Well, I, I'm not putting a value on that. The client will put a value well, on that. That actually comes back to what Lord Chatterington was saying in his opening keynote this, this morning about, you know, well, uh, you tell me how much you want to pay me. And Correct. Uh, yeah. I thought Ch Peter made a, a, a brilliant point, as he often does about many things. Yeah. But, you know, it's kind of like, it's like the pennies drop now. 
um, for him and, and maybe other people. You know, for us, this penny dropped when I set up the business 16 years ago, and yeah. we've always done it that way. So it's not particularly new to me, um, but it might be new to other people. And who knows, maybe other agencies might start to engineer their businesses a bit different. I think it's great because it's exciting and it kind of opens up the opportunities for PR agencies to be a lot more creative. So can you, I mean, obviously, if you, you don't see the value of them in, in the PR industry, can you see a value, you know, any industry that they could be a value in? Maybe, you know, for example, legal finance lawyers and, and accountants will charge you by time? Correct. Uh, you know, we often get caught in this trap and, and people often say, well, you know, other professions charge by time, lawyers charge by time, accountants charge by time, as you say. Yes, but I would say not the best ones. You know, my, my best experience were, uh, of a law firm was when um, eight years ago I came to sell Frank PR um, and I did the beauty parade of, of, of lawyers and law firms and they all came in. And, um, you know, they all quoted various fees, v different fees to do it. And the one that I ended up going with, not only for this reason, they didn't, they didn't quote a fee. They said, we'll take a percentage of the deal because we want to get as much money for you as possible. Yeah. And if we're incentivized to get as much money for you as possible, then, you know, we're happy to charge a percentage. And I went with them, and I have to say they're absolutely brilliant and hammered out a great deal for me. Now, that's just an example of being a little bit creative in terms of your pricing. And I don't yeah. see why eight PR agencies shouldn't be the same. And there's all various ways you can play that. This all comes back to, so for two days, we've been talking about disruption. And a lot of that has been technology, innovation, whatever. But I guess what you're saying is that almost some of these agencies are, are in denial about the disruption aspect of the way they they charge for their businesses. They're still doing it in the same way that they've been doing it for years and years and years. Correct, and I often think that PR agencies are a little bit naive. I think PR agencies are run brilliantly, often from a creative point of view and from actually from doing the job of PR absolutely brilliantly. What the industry has, for me, been naive about for a long time is the commercial aspects of the business. People think they're getting into and setting up a PR agency and they'll be the best PR practitioners in the world, but quite often they'll be rubbish at business. And to me, you know, we're in the PR business and, and all, you know, they're equal. To me, the, the business bit of PR is as important as the PR bit of, 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 PR, of a PR business. And, you know, n setting up a business with a model that is an ancient model, in my opinion, based on time, is not the only way to do it. We've never done it like that. And I think other agencies are coming to realise that for a lot of reasons. So you so you mentioned you, you've never done it like that. You said set up 16 years ago. You're clearly as, at an advantage having never done timesheets. I've got one final question for you. If you were being called in as a non-exec to one of these bigger group agencies that have used timesheets or any agency that's used timesheets all their, all their, you know, in their existence, what's the one bit of advice that you're going to give them given that they clearly can't change tomorrow if, if that's how the business is, is set up? Well, I'll give them probably two bits of advice. The first bit of advice would be... Are you charging for that second bit? <laughs> I'll tell you in a minute. The first <laughs> bit would be, you know, try and change culturally how you go about PR. And if you can change the culture of it, i.e. don't be obsessed about time, but be obsessed about the output and the results and the value you're creating for clients, then maybe it might be a natural transition for you one day to... Um, charged by something else other than time but I think that does take you know a while to, to, to do in a business but you've got to change the culture first before you change the system if you just changed you know out the timesheet system like that you know I think there might be problems but you've got to yeah. change the way you think and you approach your problem um, the other bit of advice that I give them is um, maybe to take the rest of the day off and try and charge a client for it on their timesheet later that week fantastic uh, Graham Cookine thank you very much for eventually uh, joining the C-Suite podcast you're welcome thanks Russ you're listening to the C-Suite podcast to listen to all previous shows in the series, you can either visit csweetpodcast.com, follow us on SoundCloud, or subscribe to the show in iTunes by searching for the C-Suite Podcast in the iTunes store. Please do give us a positive rating and review when you do. 
Well, that's it for the second of the shows being recorded here in Oxford. Thanks again to global media intelligence provider Karma for supporting this series of shows from ICO. To find out more about how Karma can help you deliver actionable insights through media monitoring and PR measurement, please do go to their website. That's just simply karma.com. That's it for now. Thanks for listening and goodbye. <laughs>